0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Or to select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability.
2: This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly.
3: And some of this book is an exercise in pleasure. I love these places, and it's not all about the hard facts. You know, when I go to somewhere like Flodden Battlefield, I am uh, in awe of the landscape.
2: That was Neil Oliver talking about his new geographical history of Britain.
0: to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
2: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, we'll be hearing from Neil Oliver, a historian and archaeologist who's well known for having presented numerous series on BBC television. He's just released his latest book, The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, and our content director, Dave Mosgrove, met up with him to find out more.
4: So, I'm here with Neil Oliver, uh, archaeologist, TV presenter, uh, writer and author of The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places. Neil, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. What were your criteria for deciding The 100 Places? I had
3: been aware for a long time, years, that I was being given a kind of uh, bespoke tour of Britain uh, on account of the kind of television that I was making. I was aware that I was seeing places, uh, a mix of places, both familiar famous landmark places and also other locations that were just so off the beaten track that the vast majority of people would never have heard of them far less had a chance to visit them and I was thinking for a long time I really ought to be keeping a note of this because I am getting a history of the British Isles that no one else is getting because it was a chronological spread and a geographical spread and I thought this is unique it's the magic carpet of television in the main, but nonetheless, I'm being shown something here that makes sense. So when it came to choosing a number, uh, I quite shamelessly thought people have done hundred things. There's a familiar ring to this, so I'll go with a hundred. The fifty, the first, let's approximately say fifty of those were instantly apparent to me because they had registered so strongly with me that I thought that's. Got to be worth hearing. That should be more broadly known. The, the second half, uh, I had to distill from many, many hundreds of places. So I took a, a, a judicious, journalistic approach. I thought, right, where are the gaps? I need to say something about the wars of religion or, or the English Civil War or the, or the First World War. I need certain things. And so I, I considered, now, where have I seen or what have I seen that makes a contribution to that story? So some of it was journalistic and others were places places like the, the Fortingall Yew, the tree, or St. Necton's Glen in Cornwall. I thought, you know, these, these are remarkable places, wonderful. Go, go and see them.
4: So is this a guidebook for places to visit or is it a, a just a, a construct for telling a narrative story of the British Isles?
3: It, my, my intention, and it'll be up to the readers to decide whether I've uh, hit the mark or not, was to have a narrative arc it is supposed to be what it says it is, the story of the British Isles, focused through the prism of 100 locations, or in some cases, um, objects, Mm. Magna Carta, Alfred Jewell, uh, the the Amesbury Archer, which is not an object, it's a person. Uh, But it it was places which I felt all strung together did tell a credible story. And there was a way of understanding the evolution of the Britain that we live in today through these 100 places. It's not a gazetteer, it's, or it certainly wasn't my intention to be somewhere that... You could read it, I would hope that people would just you know, flick open a page and see what the, see what the, what the place is, and, and each one should stand alone as, as hopefully an interesting tale about the place in its own right. But my overarching uh, intention was to tell the history of Britain in an idiosyncratic, personal way.
4: It's not a gazette and neither is a, a, uh, a, a top 100, like the number one is the no, earliest. It's chronological.
3: So. It's chronological, but I'm not saying that, th- th- you know, it doesn't count down like the charts in the yeah. old days. It's not, you know, this is the hundredth best down to the number one. You no. Know? Yeah
4: um now you, you talked a little um in the conclusion of the book about the uh the minefield of the of the current political makeup of of the British Isles and that's probably uh in part why you've chosen to use the British Isles in the in the title um did you did you feel any uh, under any pressure to kind of spread out your places across the various polities of the British Isles that exist today
3: I was mindful of it but I didn't let it uh dictate too much of the choices that I made happily I think I can genuinely say I I say in the introduction that there were numerous times over the years where I would think surely there aren't many people that have seen as much of the archipelago as me I I thought who would you have to be what would your job be that you would have been taken north south east and west so many times and and had the opportunity to see it can only be me. So I, I've I have seen a lot of places. I'm not making it up. I've been all over Ireland. I've been all over Wales. I've been all over England. I've been all over Scotland. I've been to extremities like Orkney, Shetland, the Channel Islands, Faroe. I've been all over the place. So I had to sort of focus my choices, but it wasn't. I wasn't. Um, it wasn't a struggle. Uh, although I was mindful, I thought, well, because everywhere does have part of the story. You can't tell the story of the British Isles without uh, looking at the way historical events unfold in, in each of the polities. So, uh, but it wasn't difficult, and it, it, it's not artificial. I, I have I have been to these places, and I've, uh, the vast majority of them registered with me very, very strongly. Some more than others, but a lot of these places really struck me as being places of significance.
4: And how hard did you find it? You talked about um, trying to use it as a way to tell, tell the narrative of, of, of the British Isles, and, and as you said, there are there are difficulties there with the different polities and, and different stories that mm. are going on. How hard did you find it to try and construct an overarching narrative when there, in a way, isn't because they diverge at various points?
3: I found it easy to come up with the narrative that I have come up with. Whether or not people will find it to be a helpful narrative, I cannot say, but it was it was... A story had suggested itself to me, and it was made of several. It was made of several things. For example, I felt that it, it can sound silly to say it, but Scotland, England, are very old countries. Now that sounds silly because you think, well, the planet's five billion years old; it's, it's always been here. But nonetheless, you know, for, ex- for example, there has been an entity that is more or less Scotland for about a thousand years. Uh, and the same is more or less true of, say, England. Now, Germany, for example, did not coalesce into what we would consider Germany uh, until a couple of hundred years ago. Likewise, Italy. Italy was a was a was a, an agglomeration of of individual states and statelets and cities. It didn't come together as what we would call Italy until much more recently. So these are old countries, and what that what that gives us is. We have made every mistake in the book in those certainly in the thousand years that there have been a, the, 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 uh, the the nations have been identifiable but for hundreds of thousands if not millions of years before we have been on a journey that has taught us a great deal you know we've had our na- natural disasters you know the country has been overtaken by great natural tragedies uh, we have known famine uh, we've known religious war uh, we've known uh, uh, civil war, uh, we've burned people for being witches or for, or for worshipping God in what would be considered to be the wrong way. And so other countries, which haven't maybe been in existence for as long, can genuinely look at us and think, how did, what happened to them when that tragedy unfolded there? You know, there's a good, there's a good line about, I wear a suit of armour made only of my mistakes we have done terrible things to other people, we've done terrible things to ourselves and to each other, and lessons have been learned. And, and the, uh, the, the place that we've arrived at has a lot to teach, because we have weathered a great deal, and there is wisdom in what we have been through, and I think it's, that's part of what I think is worth paying attention to the story of the British Isles for. And also, because my natural inclination is, I, I'm an archaeologist, I get badged as a historian, particularly by television, but I make no claims to being an academic historian. I'm not an enthusiast. I don't have a history degree, I've got an archaeology degree. I'm just enthusiastic about historical stories. But my natural inclination towards archaeology has has for long made me aware of the fact that the, the, uh, the constructs of England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales are incredibly new in the story of the British Isles. The archipelago, it wasn't even an archipelago until you know, 8,000 years ago when the Strega slide separated Britain from the, from mainland Europe. And we get very excited about, you know, the, the nationhood of Scotland or England, or Ireland or Wales. Where at the moment, there isn't a hotter subject than Brexit. And I find when I get very worked up about some of those subjects, I, I get solace from thinking it's a veneer on something much older. And it's it's, this, it's the situation at the moment but give it a hundred years or give it a thousand years and it will all be very different in ways that we can't even begin to imagine just as a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago it was unimaginably different again and it gives a perspective to however febrile and and insoluble today's situation can feel you think, well, we've been through everything yeah you know this too shall pass as as was as was inscribed on a ring worn by yeah. Solomon you know.
4: Okay, so, uh, so I, I too trained as an archaeologist, which, which is why I, I particularly enjoyed uh, the sections at the start of the book, which, which cover prehistory, um, uh, and, uh, and I found it very, very fascinating. And uh, I always think uh, I've got this romantic view of the, uh, of the Mesolithic, uh, the time before the farmers came here, uh, it sounds to me like a uh, sort of place in, that I'd like to have been. Yeah, you know, you, you're hunting, gathering, you're generally having a nice time. There's not too many people to bother you, um, and and in your section on the uh, on on the on the first fields in County Mayo, you. Um, allude to the fact that's been mentioned uh, in other places as well that uh, once we started farming we couldn't stop because we we were on that daily grind and once you've got too much food then you need to keep making too much food. So do you share my romantic ideal of of the mesolithic?
3: 100%. I, um, at the same time as knowing that once you've got farming and surplus you've probably got a better chance of being able to continue to feed yourself and your family. That's without a doubt. However, there is definitely a romance to the idea of being a hunter uh, untrammeled by property uh, untrammeled by the daily grind and I'm sure as I say in the book, I'm sure there were times maybe for whole maybe for a whole lifetime of a given group, the living may, may well have been good if the climate was in your favor and if the if the wild fruits ripened and if the if the wild animals and the fish were there at the right times, then there was a good life to be had. But there would also have been terrible times. And when it, when the times went bad, there was no safety net, there was no surplus. And so they would have known starvation. They must have been managing their, their um, reproductive, they must have been managing how many children they had. You know, because you can't have half a dozen children in each couple if the tribe is on the move. They must have been doing something, some kind of birth control infanticide or whatever they must have been managed so they had they had challenges to overcome and then there were the physical dangers you know there's no you know you're you're, you're hunting wild animals some of them capable of hurting you back uh, so but yes I share absolutely the the idyll of the of the farmer I think it must have been a, I think one of the lines I use in the book is it must have been a tough sell if you approached hunters in the good times and said what you want to do is cut down all these trees dig up all these roots and spend the next rest of your life tending those fields. And on the flip side, you can eat porridge and bread. It's a tough sell to people that are maybe living on wild game and, and the fruits of the forest. And, and that if they get
4: fed up with the view out the window, they can move on. So we all like porridge, so. But not, not three times a day. And you talk a little on the uh, section about Grimes grave, the, uh, the Neolithic flint mine, that the miners seem to have been careful to backfill once they'd, once they'd uh, uh, exhausted it. And you sense that perhaps that meant that they were, um, they were, they were feeling that they needed to renew the earth once they'd, they'd worked it. Do you feel, perhaps, that uh, people in the past were better custodians of, of this land than we are now? And if so, when did we start to become irresponsible? I'll start answering
3: that question by saying, in this book, because it's my story, I allowed myself a certain amount of creative licence. I wanted to give myself reign to imagine and consider what ifs that people might well dispute. And, well, I I did say, and I do stand by, the idea that the evidence does at least suggest the possibility that people there were being very judicious about how they were exploiting the resource. Now, a lot of it might be very practical. I mean, maybe if they had, had subsidence and land... Collapses on a kind of. What they might have thought, well, we can't just create this endless honeycomb under the ground. It's dangerous. So some of what they were doing might have been purely practical. Let's just have a couple of things open at a time, and when we're finished, we'll backfill them, and it'll keep everything stable. But nonetheless, excavation has shown that there were little effigies, little figures, things that look like ritual deposits. Uh, s- some flint pieces were were put back down for no apparently logical. Uh, practical reasons there was some other thinking going on and I I think it's definitely reasonable to suggest that they were mindful and I do uh, hold to the idea that for people who are harvesting the wild resources that they may have made no distinction between you know the, the necessity to by taking flint out of the ground that there might have been some concept that you had to return some of it, in order to keep it coming, they wouldn't have been able to conceive of what made the flint, what the flint was made of, why it was there, and it, it may have made sense to them to think, "Well, we better keep a reciprocal quid pro quo going on with the with the, with the natural environment." In answer to your question, I think we, uh, however, if, whether they were being uh, big-hearted, wise custodians of the earth, is hard to say. That's that's putting our uh, thinking back thousands of years and that's always a dangerous thing to do uh, and I, but i would think that we possibly became less careful custodians when as population starts to grow and the necessity for raw materials uh begins to outstrip concerns about the way in which it's being acquired you know if you've got more and more people needing these things and if there's more and more i want i don't want to use the word money but if you can if you can, if you can build up your account of status and wealth and prestige and authority by producing more and more of this, either this raw material or the finished objects, then that might have begun to outweigh the, the softer considerations of we ought to be repaying the debt. And we stopped repaying the debt, but I think there was definitely a time, for and for a long time, during the exploitation of stone and the early exploitation of metals, I think people were thinking, there's an account. An account being kept, and we should we should settle debts
4: and pay things back. But then that got swamped by numbers. You talk at uh, at various places, uh, particularly when you're thinking about the, the, the prehistoric sites you mentioned, that you can you feel a sense of, of the thin line between past and present, which is. Uh, quite an interesting thing to say um, for a uh, for an archaeologist. I don't know how your archaeological friends might think about that. Um, normally, when there's a, an archaeological question, it, it comes down to you know uh, you know it's, it's, it's religion or things like that aren't discussed that widely. So, what are you trying to say? There? What's 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 your sense?
3: I think it's I think it's important and valid to use your imagination. Okay. Uh, certainly, you don't want to get too carried away with it. And I've I've always I try. I, I always try to, to balance the two. I, I try and lay out what the, what the facts, how the facts have been interpreted in a, in a more uh, cold-blooded observational scientific manner. But I think there's also room to speculate. I, I was involved in a, a, a television project a few years ago, which has recently resurfaced on television, The Sacred Wonders of Britain. And there was great, I thought, value in we were, we encouraged the archeologists and others to imagine. Start a sentence with, well, if you're asking me, I think. And I think encouraging people to think about what may always be unknowable is valid. There are certain things about the archaeological past that we will never be able to prove conclusively, because we, we don't have enough hard data. And there's there's always got to be room for, for some speculation. And I think it's uh, it's valuable, because I think it reminds us that we're Across the thousands and hundreds of thousands of years, you know we, we have been Homo sapiens for 200,000 years and we share a lot of, we have a lot of things in common with people from the past, physical and our mental cognitive abilities. And while it's lethally dangerous to try and think that you can put yourself back into the mindset of a Neolithic farmer or a Mesolithic hunter or, or an Iron Age uh, smith, I think where there's an absence of of hard information, it's still valid to speculate because we are, after all, still people. And a lot of our motivations and a lot of our responses to outside stimuli are the same now as they would have been 10,000 or 30,000 years ago. And as long as you don't imagine that somebody's speculation is hard fact, I do think it helps to broaden out the bigger picture. You have to invite people to think and say... I can't prove this. I don't know this without, I I don't have the scientific data, but my experience of this place has made me consider the possibility that, and I think the the other half of that sentence is of value. Mm. It's not science, but it's still valuable to speculate. And I enjoy it. It's It's part of why I enjoy these places. And some of this book is an exercise in pleasure. I love these places, And it's not all about the hard facts. You know, when I go to somewhere like Flodden Battlefield, I am uh, in awe of the landscape. And in in the same way that I feel about, say, the battlefield of Isandaluana in KwaZulu-Natal, because it looks like a stage set for some sort of dramatic event. When I go to Flodden and I look out at it, you think, it really happened here. Exactly why it happened and exactly what happened. We're still working that out, but it happened here and I find a pleasure in going to and part of it for me is just saying what if
4: what if and I don't see any harm in it. Was there something specific that happened to you at, uh, at the when you looked at the Dover boat? Um, you Definitely mentioned- yes I, I've, for,
3: I'll say it quite honestly because it was purely something that I experienced I don't know if you've been to the Dover I boat no. um, I don't know uh, it, it's in a it's kept in a, in a, a special box. A glass box that that controls the temperature and the climate within, so that it, you know, it's very carefully managed for obvious reasons to keep the thing going. And I was given the opportunity to unlock the door, step inside, and be beside it. And there was a smell because the thing's been treated. It was, it is wood, but it's been treated. In, in, in particular ways, but there was, there was an aroma that meant that the room smelt, diff- the, the, the room with the, or the box with the boat in it had an atmosphere, both literally and metaphorically. And you could see quite clearly, even to the, un, I'm sure to the, uh, the untutored eye, you could see the cut marks, because this thing had been put out of use, it had been scuttled, and you could see, that cut the withies that were holding it together, uh, there were There were also the marks of its making. You could see where sharp edges had been used to shape and cut off bits of the wood to to give it its form. And when I was in the room with it, the hairs went up on my shoulders and neck. Now, whether that's just because I've got a fanciful imagination or whatever, but I, I, I had a physical reaction to being in the same room as the boat. And I can remember it still, as I'm talking to you now, I can still catch the outside edges of that sensation and I thought why am I feeling this it's just it's just a, an artifact it's just wood but I felt something and I thought well I did and I'll report the fact
4: we should we should just say what the dover boat was we, uh,
3: the dover boat is a is is exactly what it's exactly what it set uh, it was found in uh, in uh, excavations in Dover in advance of the building of a new road It was found in a deep cut that was eventually going to be a a pedestrian walkway. Uh, And it was was deep under the modern surface. And this boat, which in in its final form was probably, I think, about 60 or 70 feet long. And it was uh, created in a very bizarre way, really. It was neither a dugout canoe, nor was it the kind of... um, you know, um, you know, planks pinned together in the conventional way that you would think of a boat. They were sewn together. So these massive planks of wood had had holes drilled through them, and and it was given a, a, a shape and a structure with withies, which are thin, but flexible pieces of say willow or something equally bendy, and it was sewn together. It's a sewn plank boat. It's quite a bizarre creation, uh, but it would have been it would have taken a lot of effort to make it, a lot of skill. We presume that the kind of person who could commission it and have it have enough men to row it, it must have been of, of high status. Uh, and given its location, the, the likelihood is that it was plying back and forth across the channel to the continent. It's quite an amazing artefact. Only half of it survives because it, it was a rescue excavation. They were working against the clock. They had to cut... It's, it's like an impacted tooth. You know, they couldn't get it all out in one go, so they just took out part of it. And even the part they got came out in bits and it was reassembled by the conservators. Uh, And it's been treated so that, well, potentially, if it it remains in its special box, it could last forever. And it's this extraordinary Bronze Age survival. And to me, and I'm allowed this personal opinion, it is, it was, I thought then, and I have not had end since, it's the best thing I've ever seen, as artefacts go. I have not had a, a, a stronger reaction to being in the presence of any other survival from the past. I squatted down beside it and thought, God,
4: I can feel the Bronze age. Well, well I'd better go and see it. That sounds
1: good. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging. So you can connect with candidates faster, and listeners of this show will get a seventy-five dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/history-extra. Just go to indeed.com/history-extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Time flies. We blinked, and twenty twenty-four is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com historyextra history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com help, slash history extra.
4: Now, look, we, we need to, to leap forward a bit. we we've cover prehistory a bit. You're not hugely positive, I think it's fair to say, about the contribution of the Romans. Um, how, do you, how I do like you to throw a bit about, of controversy in the there. About the Romans. What, what's, you, you don't think they were they were that good?
3: For I prison. was being deliberately controversial. I studied archaeology at Glasgow University. I didn't do any of the Roman papers uh, because at the time, there I was, 17, 18, 19 years old, uh, they sounded then to me a bit dull. Uh, they sounded a bit stiff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just because of, I don't know just the way I'm wired up, I was much more inclined towards the prehistory I, I didn't like the, the idea that so much of it was written down. I thought it was more of a fun game to try and work out what the what the uh, what the Mesolithic hunters had been all about because they didn't write anything down. I thought, yeah. ah, I was you're cheating a bit with the Romans because they tell you at least some of what they're doing and why I thought it's I'll leave that to the Romanists yeah, so it was a bit tongue in cheek as everyone else. You know, in my sober, uh, sensible moments, I I appreciate the the glory that was Rome, without a shadow of a doubt. One of the most astonishing manifestations of human intent that the world has yet seen, without a doubt. Uh, But uh, with a caveat, I think, you know, this whole concept of what the Romans did for us, uh, I like to remind myself and others that there were people here who had a cosmology and a way of doing things, and they were clever, and they were the inheritors, the legatees of thousands of years of history. And they weren't just sitting around in a swamp, Monty Python style, waiting for somebody to come in, show them how the world worked. And I just wanted to be deliberately controversial or provocative, I suppose, in saying that, you know, yes, the Romans were extraordinary, but so were the people
4: that were here already. But you would still recommend having a look at the Roman baths in Bath. Oh, God, yes.
3: Oh, for me, I, I, the the Roman baths are staggering. You know, the fact that you know the fact you can put your hand in that flow of water and think, Roman men and women and children felt this. This. This water. It smelt like this. It was this temperature. It was running then, and it's running now, and it'll probably be running forever. But it's an amazing place. For me, though... Um, it's Hadrian's Wall. I was getting taken to Hadrian's Wall on school trips. I mean, I remember going there before I knew I wanted to be involved in archaeology and history. I remember going to house steads and all the rest of it from I was at 10, 11, 12, probably primary school, I think, we had our first school trip to there because I grew up in Dumfries. Mm. So Hadrian's Wall was accessible. Um, and to me, that's the, that's the most emphatic Roman presence in Britain. For me,
4: yeah. I like the wall. And in your um, chapter on the wall, you focus particularly on that amazing place with the with the Sycamore really gap. with the really cool tree. So. Absolutely, yeah.
3: yes. Which is it's one of the most it's one of the most photographed places in Britain. It's the most it's one of the most popular trees if there can be such a thing. It yeah. wins awards for best tree of the year and, and such not? like. Yeah. And why not? It featured in the Kevin Costner version of uh, Robin Hoodie. in a day's march. He gets from the White Cliffs of Dover to later the same days jumping over Hadrian's Wall, which is a fantastic bit of artistic license. Uh, and it's if you go and see it, I'm sure most people have, have surely must have glimpsed Hadrian's Wall by now. But when you think that someone said, "Do you know what? We can build a wall from one side of this country to the other, and not just some flimsy wall, a great white lump of masonry that will stretch from east to west, and will have forts and it's extraordinary, it's still a wonder to behold."
4: Right, we're gonna we're gonna leap forward a bit. Um, uh into into medieval period. Um, I've got I've got to allow you to tell us about Stirling Castle, home ground. Um, you, you live Best Castle Dubai, I, I, I Best Castle
3: in Britain. That's right. Okay. That's a sweeping statement. <laughs> we feel I live in Stirling with my with my wife and my, and our three kids who are age, at the moment 15, 12 and 10. Uh, if you live in a certain postcode within Stirling, uh, you're effectively by in terms of ancient statute within the city walls. So you get to visit the castle for free, anytime you want, and as many times as you want. Brilliant. And so you have to go up to the gates with like a gas bill or something which proves your address. (laughs) So you get in, and so we go all the time, and we do treasure hunts, and we get the kids, we'll drop a list of things for the kids to spot, and we'll go to different bits of it we'll go to the 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 renaissance palace or we'll go to the battlements or we'll look at the little uh, the little porthole that was cut through the battlements for Mary uh, queen of scots so that she could look out as a toddler without being spotted by henry viii's agents prowling below when they were uh, when henry was trying to get hold of her for a bride for his son uh, and it's just you go to edinburgh castle gets much more publicity but edinburgh castle has been monkeyed about with a lot there's a lot of uh, much more modern additions and add-ons it's been it's been altered stirling castle is in many respects the castle that james V, james the 4th james V built it's still a medieval uh 15th 16th century castle and i feel it's redolent of that just recently the Uh, the the Renaissance Palace that James built uh, for his wife Marie de Guise, the mother of Mary Queen of Scots, uh, was the subject of a £12 million, I think, renovation. And it's stunning. The castle, because he was trying to impress his French-born wife, he imported... uh, all those centuries ago, French artisans to come and build it and decorate the thing. And d- during the, the, recons, the refurbishment, likewise, French craftsmen were brought in again to, to recreate the place. And it's, v- it's one of the most impressive and evocative visitor attractions that I have visited in Britain. Um, it's got all sorts of quirky things about it. The frontage... One of the, the great frontages that, that looks across at the Great Hall was used for the filming of uh, all the exteriors for Coldits, the 1970s television series. The Great Hall itself is very controversial because it was, uh, it's been reharled, which is a, a, a kind of a, what do you call it, a, a cladding, a paint, really, to weatherproof it. It's a, a kind of yellow-gold colour so that f- from a great distance you can see the, the Great Hall of Stirling Castle. It, you know You can see it from miles away. And s- the whole castle really should be that colour because at one point it would all have been painted and the statuary around it would have been garish colours to our eyes. It would have been quite the, quite the edifice to, to be confronted with. Uh, and it has so many stories to tell. Stirling, in general, and b- more in particular the castle, is known f- locally as the, the brooch that fixes the highlands to the lowlands. Uh, Stirling Castle sits on a rock that, was, that overlooks what was up until the modern era the only reliable stretch of dry land for moving large groups of people or animals north or south. It was marshland, bog, morass on either side. There was just a narrow strip, really. And so anyone moving north or south through Scotland would pass the rock and pass the castle. If you controlled the castle, you had a great chance of seeing who was coming and going in Scotland. So it's incredibly important. And so it has overseen all manner of history. You know, Robert the the Bruce, William Wallace, the Battle of Stirling Bridge, all manner of events unfolded. Stirling is the corruption of a Gaelic word that means the place of strife because it was known that battles always happened there because armies converged. People used to try and round up the men of Falkirk, which is a town nearby, because they were the local hard men. They're still on on Gable Ends in Falkirk. You'll see better mess with the devil than with the barons of Falkirk. The idea being that the the general that got to that part of Scotland first and rounded up the men of Falkirk had the best chance of winning whatever battle he had in mind because they were the local halfmen. And all of that revolves around Stirling Castle like a storm. It's all there. And when you go up there, you're looking out at where battles of the Jacobite rebellions happened. Stirling Bridge in 1297, William Wallace. You look across at the Wallace Monument, on its on its Abbey Craig edifice, uh, the Banffburn Visitor Centre, you can see the saltire flying over where King Robert the Bruce had his uh, had his viewpoint to watch the Edward's army approach along the Roman road.
4: Brilliant. That's a, an excellent case for for Sterling as a as a great castle. We might have to ask our re, our listeners whether they uh, whether they agree or whether they would nominate other castles. I'd I'd, I'd mention Chepstow I think as a as a fantastic castle. But Harluch, there's another cracker, Harluch, which, which is in your book, which is also uh, brilliant. But um, but we'd, we'd better we better shove on. Um, um, I, I, I did a, a similar-ish project to this um, a few years ago when I asked 100 historians to nominate places that they thought were significant in British history. And uh, when I'd finished that project, the one thing that struck me was that I'd, we talked a lot about places, but what we hadn't talked about was routeways, tracks, paths, channels. And I thought, actually, that was that was an oversight uh, and it missed a lot of elements of stories. And You know, historical stories tend to be journeys, people going from one place to another. Did you find that at all when you were working on this? Did you think, oh, I wish I could be doing more on, on, on movement? Uh, you raise a very good point. Uh, I was recently
3: at the uh, Melrose, the Borders Book Festival in Melrose, and the session that I was part of was chaired by uh, Alistair Moffat, uh, who's a friend of mine. He's a, he's a historian. He was a television producer for a long time. His most recent book is called Need to check this. I think it's called the Hidden Ways, and it's about that precise subject. And it's a lovely read. Mm. It's it's all about that. It's from from um, many centuries past up into the modern day. It's rediscovering and following the the ways that people used to move around the country, particularly in Scotland. It's great. Mm. All manner of paths and trackways and all the rest of it. Yes, you you're you're quite right. Uh, there is a, a, a fascination. I, I was. Um, vaguely involved in as much as I was a local reporter in a local newspaper at the time when uh, Glasgow University, the Glasgow University Archaeological Research uh, Division, GARD, came and excavated on the line of an, ex- uh, an extension of the M74 motorway from north to south. And they, f- they surveyed it and then excavated as they found places of interest and significance. Uh, and what was, what cumulatively, I mean, amongst many things that were fascinating about that project were the fact, what was obvious was that that corridor, which is still where the M74 is today, the main routeway linking north and south England and Scotland, was the routeway in the Mesolithic, for example. You know, yeah. They found they found places where people had, had created great fires and they had uh, had uh, depressions in the ground, clay-lined boiled water with stones and then cooked food in them. And people, all periods of Scottish history, from the first hunters right up to the modern era, that was how you, that was how you got north to south. We're still on the same track that, that Mesolithic hunters were on. At Stirling Castle, uh, the road is not a million miles away from where we excavated uh, as part of the project to find the battlefield of Bannetburn, the Roman Road. The Roman road is still there. We, ex- we unearthed and revealed a beautiful section of it. You could see the camber, you could see the paving of it, you could see the, the guttering either side, the drainage for it. And it, it was the Roman road, that, and it pointed straight at the rock of Stirling Castle. It comes And when, and Robert the Bruce put his men where the Bannetburn Heritage Centre is today because it meant that he could see when they... Oh, there they are. <laughs> They're coming now. Because the only way that people would have approached... Stirling Castle, as Edward's army was trying to do to come and relieve the siege that Edward the Bruce, uh, Robert's brother, had been uh, uh, prosecuting at the castle. The only way it could be relieved was by bringing up an English army. How would they come? The Roman road, which was by the time Edward's army was coming up in the 14th century, you know how old was how old was that Roman road? And so, yes, there various times in the course of this project and and in others. I think there's wonderful stuff to be. Remembered and and reanalyzed about the way in which people have always moved about the country, and you'd be surprised at how much of it has stayed the same.
4: Yeah, um, obviously, by doing a project like this, by identifying hundred places, you uh, invite people to to query your choices. I hope so. Um, the what the one omission for me, the one surprising thing that you didn't include was um, anything to do with the Battle of Hastings or the, the Hastings site for the Norman Conquest. Um, how how do you defend yourself on that one?
3: I had a hundred places to fill, uh, and in each case, uh, it was places that had resonated with me. Now, believe it or believe it not, I have not been on the fields that are thought to be the scene of the Battle of Hastings. I've been in Hastings many times with Coast and other projects. I've done various things there. I have not actually stood on the battlefield there. Mm -hmm. And so... That's my that would be the, the keynote of my defense right H- It had to be somewhere or something that I had seen or handled that resonated with me
4: okay um but you do uh, you do talk about Durham Cathedral, which as uh, a sort of consequence of that as a, a sort of follow up from the uh, from the invasion. I, I wanted I was very I was careful that uh, it's a hundred places, but
3: I would hope that if it, if whoever reads it would realize that it, it touches on many, many more than 100 places because one of my motivations uh, for the project was because I wanted to encourage people to go to places because I think, maybe it's just because I'm childish, but I think there is something special about not just reading about an event but going to somewhere that's physically the product of or the scene of an event and some are harder than others. For example, when it came to, I wanted to include the Wars of the Roses, but where do you go? Because the reality is I've been at a few of the battlefields related to it and there is nothing to see. It's difficult. And when you go to Towton, the, the great charnel house of the, of the Wars of the Roses, it, there's not much to see. Mm. I, I, and I, and I, don't, I didn't find it a particularly resonant uh, location. Maybe other people would go to it and think, no, I can, I can smell the blood in the air. I don't know. But it didn't work for me. So I, I chose Westminster Abbey. And specifically the tomb of uh, Margaret uh, Beaufort, mother of Henry the Seventh, yeah. grandmother of Henry the Eighth, because I felt that, and I've been there, and I I think I remember being by by that, that, that's a, that tomb and thinking, God, somewhere in there are the bones of a little woman, because she was she was according to all the accounts she was of of small stature, and yet she was, God, she was some she was some impressive human being, you know she was pregnant at. Twelve had a baby at thirteen, her only child, uh, and she she saw him onto the she saw it he was the ultimate victor of the Wars of the Roses, and then his uh, his son was Henry VIII. For goodness' sake, the, you know the, the Tudor line comes out of her, and I I felt that I got some sense of I thought well I can't go to the I, I don't get it from the Battlefields, but I thought here is a kind of a, a a nerve center for something that was significant to do with the Wars of the Roses, so. I, I hope that I'm, I'm giving people one place, and then from from that there are dotted lines going. Now I go, I, talk, I could talk about the battlefield at Towton and you can. And there is a little stone cross. Well, it's, it's not little, but it's you, you could overlook it. Uh, but there are, there are there are there are many more than a hundred places. I would hope that the,
4: the hundred places are the key to a thousand places or more. So uh, we're almost out of time, and when we. Barely. We've only got halfway through the story, really. It, less than halfway. So good. Uh, you have to buy the book. There's loads more in the in the second half. I would have loved to have talked to you about uh, Penley and, uh, and Mausole and, and the and that story. The uh, the the, um, the loss um, of the Solomon um, Brown. Yeah, it sounds. It's an amazing story, and everyone should read that one. Um, uh, but you, you go right up to the present day. But um, just sort of in conclusion, uh, are are there maybe five places, five places that you would pick where specifically where they're really good to visit. Where would you go for for a really good visitor experience?
3: For a really good visitor experience, how dare you ask me such an impossible question? I could I could only f- narrow down my favourite places to hundred, and that was a struggle. Uh, let me think off the top of my head. Where? We're, Stirling Castle, of course. If you want a sense of of that of that world, and that world from which so much else sprung, I mean, f- apart from anything else, uh, James the Sixth of Scotland, who became James the First. Of England on the death of Elizabeth, the was was educated in a room in Stirling Castle. He knew it, I mean, and that's, just, that's so much of British history. It's like a, it's like a bottleneck. There's so much of Scottish and British history passes through it and goes off to its eventual destination. So definitely go and see uh, Stirling Castle. Uh, the Fortingall U is an extra, or Gre- Glen Lyon, uh, which is Walter Scott described it as the loneliest, the loveliest Glen in Scotland. It's a for people that are interested in the landscape of Scotland, of Britain, it's a beauty. Anyway, just go there to see the landscape. But within it, there is Glen Lyon. There are various locations within it that tell moving stories about uh, about history. And there's the Fortin Gull U, which most tree scientists are happy that it's at least 3,000 years old. But there's some speculation that it could be the oldest living thing in Europe. And how do you prove a thing like that? and I just allow for the possibility. So go and see the Fortincoe You Imagine that. It, it may have been growing there before the archipelago was even an archipelago. It may have been there when Britain was still attached to the mainland Europe. So it's always been there. We Go and see that. Uh, that's two. Um, the, the, a lot of people, in, I'm sure a lot of people in Scotland would probably give me pelters for this, but I would say uh, the Greenwich Museum, to go and stand beside the statue of Wolfe, because it is the best view of London, I do, it's not just me saying that. I think that I think a lot of people would. You, you've, it's the only place, or it's the best place, where you can go and you can get the sense of of it almost being tabletop-sized. You can just stand and without moving your head, you can take in London, and consider this a two thousand years of of significance that that place has had. Not just to England, but to Britain and to the world. London. So I'd go and see, and of course, by by being there, you're at the you're at the the Greenwich. Observatory, where time begins and ends. There's the story of Wolfe, there's there's stories of, of the Tudors, all of it uh, orbiting around that
4: place. So that's three... There's a bit going on there, I would agree.
3: There's a bit going on there. You mentioned the Penley lifeboat. I wanted the book to consider the human, uh, the small, although I don't mean that in any sense, to diminish significance of, of the story of Britain. The the Penley lifeboat went out on a distress call, and all the all the the boat was lost. The eight lifeboat men were lost, and all, the the eight lives of the boat that they were trying to help they were all lost. And it's th- still the last time that the RNLI lost all men, all, all at one go. Uh, and hopefully, it's the very last time that that will ever happen because that was an appalling tragedy but when you go there to Mousel, Mouse Hole as it actually looks but they, they call it Mousel down there and the, the boathouse is there and it's been empty ever since and there's a little garden and every year on the anniversary of the tragedy in December all the town lights are turned off uh, in remembrance of, of those men that went out and I find there's a line that I quote in it from a letter from a, a, an Air Force, a, a, a US Air Force pilot who was on secondment to the at the time and he, was, and he was there and he witnessed it and he described them as the greatest eight men he had ever seen because he witnessed it from his helicopter although he couldn't help and to some extent I find it the most personally the most moving story of them all because you know the RNLI's volunteer those people are out there risking their lives as volunteers because they feel it's the right thing to do and I find that there's something about the, the existence of the, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution and the kind of people men and women who volunteer for it which says something profound about the human spirit so I would go and see that because it's just a little stone building, really, but it, it, it holds uh, something that, that should be cherished. So that's four. One more. One more. The Ness of Brodgar. Okay. Uh, archaeological site still being excavated, might be being excavated forever because it's vast, on the archipelago of Orkney. It's Neolithic. Uh, it's the single best archaeological Discovery, I would say, in my lifetime, because I'm interested in the Neolithic particularly. I like the Neolithic of Britain and of Scotland, so it's, it, it ticks a lot of boxes for me. Its discovery and its ongoing excavation is, uh, is having archaeologists around the world reconsider the Neolithic of Europe. Uh, people were up there 5,000 years ago doing something incredibly meaningful to them. Uh, they were building, they were they were creating buildings, they were decorating those buildings, they were using them. They were domestic, they were ritual, all manner of things were going on in that place. and it's it's a reminder apart from anything else that at different times different places in Britain have been hugely important. And I, I like to I like to indulge the possibility that places like the Ness, as Stonehenge, as Avebury, as the tombs at Nowth might have been famous while they were being used not just in Britain, not just in Ireland, not just in Scotland, but they might have drawn people from around the world, that people might have been coming to them on pilgrimage, like a Lourdes, people south of the Alps would have gone, before I die, I'm going to see whatever they called the Nessa Brodgar. It must have had a name. I'm going to go there. It must have drawn people because they would have known. So there's my five.
4: I would agree. Orkney, absolutely amazing place to visit. One last question. If, If your publishers had allowed you an extra three pages, four pages... What would be one hundred and one site one hundred and one that uh, that didn't get in? Oh
3: God, these are terrible questions.
4: Site one hundred and one. Um,
3: oh gosh, um, where where are we? Let me let me just take a, a an aerial view of Britain and see where I would go uh, for another story. Oh, I might go to Flag Fen. Brilliant, because I'm an archaeologist like you. Uh, I've visited Flag Fen. It was nearly in, what, a, what on earth was going on there? That causeway, like a motorway, built across the Fenland in Cambridgeshire. People depositing metalwork and all sorts of other things that we would never find because they wouldn't all been made of metal. Um, that was some response to a changing landscape uh, by people just like us, but whose circumstances were impossibly different and really impossible to imagine. Uh, but what a story Flag Fen tells! Yeah. And you can go and see it because uh, God bless them, the archaeologists there. There's a there's a building over a whole section of it, and you can go in and see these blackened timbers that are just as they were, They're still
4: there. Yeah, the waterlogged deposits, amazing, amazing survivals. Uh, right, we, we must finish. Neil, thank you so much. That was, that was brilliant. Um, the book is out on the 20th of September, published by Bantam, and you're also doing a, a, a tour round Britain, which starts in Harrogate on the 1st of October and goes around the country 39 places, and details are at neiloliver.com forward slash talks dot html. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
2: That was Neil Oliver. The story of the British Isles in 100 Places has just been published by Bantam Press. And if it whets your appetite for this kind of treatment of British history, then you may also want to check out the BBC History magazine book 100 Places That Made Britain, which was written by Dave Musgrove and it has recently been re-released in a paperback edition. OK, well, that is about all for today, but do listen in again on Thursday for more from the world of history.
0: (laughs) Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes
1: of this podcast.